Hey guys, welcome to the View from the Front podcast, where you're going to find news that you won't find anywhere else, and where you're going to hear from a guy who wants to unite the country, who wants to show as much love as humanly possible, and who wants to motivate and make you a little bit wiser with each and every episode. My name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior Marine and a guy who spent more than 10 years in the news business. And as a guy who's been deployed overseas, and as a guy who worries a lot about our current media situation, as well as the state of our country, I I decided it was time to speak out. I can no longer remain silent while our country grows further and further apart. I absolutely love America, and I care a lot about our military, where they're at, where they might be going, what conflicts might be on the horizon. And I know that as Americans, we are each and every one subjected to loads of news and opinion that upsets us, divides us, and causes us to hate those on the other side. I'm not that way, and it's time to provide the balanced counter to that division. We need a calm and solid media voice who doesn't work to divide, and who doesn't use scare tactics or extreme, minuscule examples to work up their audience. Every day and every night, on a daily, almost hourly basis, this country hears too many distortions, exaggerations, and selective examples designed to capture attention and rile up the audience. No more. No more of that. It's time for some steady, level-headed facts. And it's time we do our smaller part, each and every one of us, to pull our country together. After all, a house divided cannot stand. And I believe that we can best reunite and reunify this country by showing more love and cooperation. I don't claim to have all the answers. But I know that our democracy doesn't work without informed voters. And I also know we need to grow closer together and show more patience and kindness to each other. If we want to pass on a better future for our kids, then we need to heal our country. And I think we can do this. Guys, we can absolutely do this. Each of us can be more patient, more kind, and more optimistic. We can talk about politics less, and we can remember how awesome our country is. Most Americans are good, and we need to remember this. Always. From the poorest ghetto to the richest suburb. From the low ground in Florida to the towering peaks out west. America is a wonderful country that we were all very fortunate to be born in. Our country is filled with amazing, hardworking people who would give you the shirts off their backs. And if you think about it, every single natural disaster has proven that our people, of every race and income bracket, both the rich and the poor, our people will always rally and help one another in times of need. Don't believe the hyperventilating people you see on TV. Don't believe the predictions that our country's best days are behind us. This is not true. It's simply not true. We have seen darker days. We have overcome far worse. We need to be of good cheer, and we need to stop living in fear and despair. And with that out of the way, let's get started. This is the January 19th edition of The View from the Front, and we're really glad to have you here. In this episode, we'll be discussing several topics that I think will really interest you and that I almost guarantee you haven't seen in the news. This includes plenty of news about the Ukraine-Russia conflict. We'll debunk the top five myths about the Russian invasion. We'll cover a new defense treaty that Japan signed with Britain, as well as some of the behind-the-door reasons that Japan is uh, stepping out of its passive state. And then we'll cover two bits of cool tech news, including lasers on ships and an unmanned fleet of 100 U.S. Navy ships in the Persian Gulf region. And then finally, we'll cover plenty of motivation and wisdom. The biggest news since the last episode is news coming out of the U.K. They announced on Monday that they are going to be finally sending 
I shouldn't say just them, but um, they're the first of the Western countries to finally send main battle tanks. They're going to send 14 Challenger II main battle tanks. They're also going to send eight self-propelled howitzers. As you recall, those are the ones that they're literally a vehicle instead of like towed artillery that you have to pull into a field, turn around, aim, fire. It takes a bit to set up. It takes a bit to hook it back up and move. The self-propelled ones are like the tanks, but they basically have a big gun on top that's artillery. They're going to send eight self-propelled howitzers. Those are huge because they can shoot and move. They're also going to send hundreds more armored and protective vehicles, including their Bulldog armored personnel carriers. They're somewhat similar uh, to just regular armored personnel carriers. They don't have a big gun or anything like a Bradley. They don't have like a 25mm or 30mm gun. But they still protect troops who are advancing. Uh, they you know, provide some protection against uh, small arms fire and artillery fire as long as it doesn't land too close. So definitely better than nothing. They're also going to be sending some minefield breaching equipment, some bridging capabilities, as well as dozens more of the uh, UAV drones, which will help uh, artillery find targets and guide it in. So that's huge. They're going to be sending some missiles and plenty of spare parts to refurbish up to 100 Ukrainian tanks and infantry fighting vehicles. I've got images thanks to Status6, which is a big-time military analyst on Twitter. Uh, they put images of what the Challenger 2 tank looks like if you want to go see that, or if you want to see what that self-propelled howitzer looks like, or the British version of their armored personnel carrier. You can see those on my Substack, but this is huge news by Britain. It's going to help a ton, and it's already got more and more folks talking about that uh, Germany may follow suit, and Germany's trying to essentially say the U.S. should send main battle tanks first, but there's lots of discussions on that, and some of the analysts are saying that they think maybe this weekend... Germany will finally announce it's going to start sending some Leopard tanks is what they have. Of course, we've said in the past, America's main battle tanks, the Abrams, those don't work quite as well for the Ukrainians. They use a different fuel source. They're much more complex. And so where they don't run on diesel, it would cause all kinds of logistical issues that, you know, not that it hurts the Ukrainians, but it certainly makes it more challenging to... Um, keep their forces supplied and moving. So the Leopards are the better fit, and that's what everyone has been pulling for. So we'll see if that happens this weekend. A lot of people are saying it's probably going to happen this weekend. Also expected to happen this weekend is another large aid package from the U.S., and that will likely include more Bradley fighting vehicles. Also, uh, what the Army calls striker vehicles, they're really fast, eight-wheeled vehicles. They have light uh, weapons on top, like a 50 caliber machine gun. Uh, nothing huge for sure, but they're faster and better for roads, for advancing troops, and so they will definitely be welcome as well. The Army used them a ton in Iraq and also some in Af Afghanistan, but a ton in Iraq. Um, so they're great vehicles. They hold a lot of dudes in the back, and they should help the Ukrainians as well. I will say, obviously, all of this is great news for Ukraine, and frankly, Ukraine needs it, because it has come out since the last episode that Putin is definitely probably doubling down. 
Um, there are stories increasingly popping up everywhere from Politico to you name it. Um, there's one in Yahoo. There's one pretty much everywhere because Ukraine's the one saying this. But uh, Ukraine intelligence officials are warning that Russia plans a new mobilization wave up to 500,000 men to fight in Ukraine starting in mid-January. And as you remember, earlier this year, they called up 300,000. Now, a lot of Russian men fled the country, and I'm not sure they ever really hit their number of 300,000. I would say it was probably closer to 100, 150,000 from all the stuff I've seen. And these were conscripts. They were poorly trained. In some cases, they weren't trained at all. They were literally picked up, put on buses, and sent down there, handed a uniform. Some of them would fire three to five rounds. Some of them would, you know, go to a firing range and get a little bit of training with an AK. But they were basically bodies. Um, so, not sure how well these will be trained. Um, on the one hand, it's incredibly scary to think that Russia is going to double down and try to, you know, draft 500,000 additional soldiers, because that's a lot of men. On the other, poorly trained conscripts, it's not like it is, you know, back in the day in medieval warfare, where it's just guys with spears or swords, and you had a bunch of other guys with spears or swords, so numbers really mattered. In modern warfare, well-trained troops will just cut through conscripts. It's it would take me a few minutes to explain, but it's just historically, it's just the reality. Even in my own training, you know, I had uh, 13 weeks of boot camp. We then did eight weeks of infantry training, and we thought we were good then. Uh, that's three months plus another two months infantry training. That's five months. And then you get to the Fleet Marine Force where you're actually in a battalion, and you realize you barely know anything. You're at best, you're like a PFC, a private first class. You couldn't lead a team. You barely understand tactics, and then you start to really get integrated into units that do maneuver warfare, fire and move, other tactics that are, on one hand, they're kind of simple in concept, but they're complex to carry out sometimes. So the the number of men will matter, and it's going to be a lot for Ukraine to deal with, but I've been thinking on it for several days, and after initially being, you know, worried that Putin is doubling down because I just, my heart breaks for the Ukrainian people and what they're having to go through. And to know that uh, Vladimir Putin is not going to give up is, you know, on the one hand, it's kind of heartbreaking. But as I've, as I've thought about it, I'm not sure that they have the capability to create the tanks, to get these men trained, to do really much at all. Um, so they'll mostly be unfortunately for them, targets for the Ukrainian military. As long as the Ukrainian military stays supplied, um, the Ukrainian military is increasingly just hardened veterans that are, they're, they're increasingly probably becoming some of the best troops on the planet because nothing teaches you better or faster than war. It's a painful set of lessons that active duty units on a front line learn, but you learn them very quickly and very, um, efficiently. I remember we used to do fire and move drills and in theory when you're firing and moving you're supposed to get up, charge forward, get down very very quickly and you get down quickly it hurts your knees, it hurts your elbows, it's completely exhausting but the idea is that if you're up running for very long more than a second or two some enemy soldier is going to see you, they're going to aim at you and they're gonna put a bullet in you if they can 
And so if you do it right, you jump up, you sprint forward, you jump down, and you do it very quickly. And then someone else is firing, and they jump up, move forward, down quickly. When you're training, you do that slower and slower because you're training. It sucks to get up and get down. And our captain used to always say, this will be something that will, if we ever get in the real deal, you will learn this lesson very quickly and you will do it the right way because it takes just seeing one of your friends take a bullet and you will realize why you should get up quickly, move forward very quickly, and get down very quickly and not sprint too far forward. So these Ukrainian units have learned a lot of battle-hardened type lessons that it's easy to learn in principle during peacetime, but in war it just sharpens and speeds things up. We've also talked about how efficiently they bring new weapons to bear. War just speeds things up. It's There's really no better way to learn how to do it. It's just unfortunate that it takes a war to do that. I will also say that news came out that Russia is going to be changing its leadership in the military. So that further reflects that Vladimir Putin is not giving up. So I've got a link in the source notes. If you want to read about that, you can read about who that new general is and what that may or may not mean. It, From what I can tell, it really doesn't matter who it is. He's just a guy who's willing to sacrifice lots and lots of Russians to achieve short-term objectives. So... That's in the source notes as well, and from there, let's move to one more topic on the subject of Russia. Let's talk about NATO for a second. I'm not sure, of course, NATO is a North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It's mostly Western countries in Europe, and I'm not sure when they put this out, NATO, that is, but I came across it, and I did want to share them, because NATO is trying to counter the disinformation and lies from Vladimir Putin. And it's important these be countered because slowly but surely some small segment of Americans are beginning to peel away from wanting to support Ukraine in its fight of self-defense. So NATO put out the top five Russian myths debunked. Thought I'd go over them very quickly. I've got a link to them in the source notes if you want to go check them out. But myth number one, NATO is at war with Russia and Ukraine. So, of course, they talk about that NATO is not at war and that NATO does not seek a confrontation, but that NATO does support Ukraine's right to self-defense as enshrined in the UN Charter. And they go a bit into the weeds on it, but I can just tell you, as we watch Ukraine fight Russia, that if NATO was at war with Russia, there would be probably Allied troops already entering Moscow at this time. So... I, I am confident Russia does not want a war with NATO because NATO would rip it apart very quickly. Myth number two. NATO promised Russia it would not expand after the Cold War, which is something that Vladimir Putin has been saying. Here's what NATO says. The facts are, such an agreement was never made. NATO's door has been open to new members since it was founded in 1949, and that has never changed. Then it goes a bit into an, what it calls the open door policy, which is in Article 10 of NATO's founding treaty, and talks about a little bit about how expansion back to Mikhail Gorbachev in 2014, that the topic of NATO expansion was not discussed at all wasn't brought up in previous years and so this is just something new that 
Russia has started saying, but the reality is it's not true as much of what Vladimir Putin says, but you still have to knock down the lies. That's just the reality. So no agreement was ever made on that. Myth number three, NATO is aggressive and a threat to Russia. So the facts are, obviously, NATO is a defensive alliance. Uh, I'm not sure why it's hard for people in Russia to understand, or at least Vladimir Putin, but most people who are sane and normal do not want war. Those of us who've been anywhere near a conflict know it's not fun. Most of us want to be happy, have peace, and enjoy our time with our family and friends. So NATO has no no reason to want to go to war. We are relatively sane in the rest in the West. NATO further points out that prior to Russia illegal annexation of Crimea back in 2014, there were no NATO troops in the eastern part of the alliance. So they have the troops that have even moved toward Russia are for defensive purposes because Russia has been invading nearby peaceful countries for the past decade. So Russia and Putin are trying to spin things now that because NATO has moved some troops to the east to prepare for Russian aggression and to defend against any possible attack, they're now saying that NATO was being aggressive. That's not true. Um, the U.S. had moved many, if not most, of its troops out of Europe and out of the NATO, basically, uh, realm of responsibility as Obama hit the reset button, as Trump went into office, he wanted to disband NATO. There was no threat from NATO to Russia. So Vladimir Putin is again lying on that. Let's move to myth number four. NATO is encircling and trying to contain Russia. Again, NATO says we're a defensive alliance, and it says this myth also ignores geography. Only 6% of Russia's land borders touch NATO countries. Russia has land borders with 14 countries. Only five of them are NATO. And again, we're talking 6%. They literally have a map. When you see how big Russia is, it's almost shocking. You forget just how big the country is. Uh, If it wasn't such an impoverished country, it would have so much more power. But they have completely corrupted the government and the business community. So it is unfortunately a mostly poor country. But... It is a massive land-based country that stretches from Europe to Asia all the way up to Alaska. And again, only 6% of Russia's land borders actually touch any NATO country. So again, NATO is not encircling and trying to contain Russia. They are trying to keep Russia from invading more countries, but that's way different. Number five. NATO's intentions in the former Yugoslavia, Kosovo, and Libya prove that the alliance is not defensive. So they get into the weeds on each of these, and they explain how that in each case, the various situations were authorized by either UN resolution or were not even opposed by Russia. I'm going to go into each one briefly because it's worth explaining Let's go with Yugoslavia first. 
As NATO says, I'm just going to read it, the former Yugoslavia did not break up because of NATO. The alliance did not use military force to change borders in the former Yugoslavia. From 1992 to 1995, NATO conducted several military operations in Bosnia, including enforcing a no-fly zone and providing air support for UN peacekeepers. These activities were mandated by the United Nations Security Council, of which Russia is a member. NATO airstrikes against Bosnian Serb positions in 1995 helped pave the way for the Dayton Peace Agreement, which ended the war in Bosnia that had killed over 100,000 people. From 1996 onwards, NATO-led multinational peacekeeping forces in Bosnia, which included troops from Russia. The European Union took over that mission in 2004, so from 1996 to 2004, it's almost another decade. Obviously, the Yugoslavian War was... It lasted forever, um, well over a decade, lots of bloodshed, and thank goodness that one ended, although there are still embers of it every now and then that seem to still be burning and could still, yet again, lead to more bloodshed. So let's move to Libya. NATO reminds us that the NATO-led operation in Libya in 2011 was launched under the authority of two UN Security Council resolutions, which is 1970 and 1973, neither of which was opposed by Russia. Again, in Libya, Russia didn't even oppose what NATO was doing. Then it goes a bit into the weeds about how the international community, quote, to take uh, as part of these uh, resolutions, quote, to take all necessary measures to protect civilians and civilian populated areas under threat of attack. This is what NATO did with the political and military support of regional states and members of the Arab League. Of course, those are the neighbor countries there. So again, it wasn't like NATO was being aggressive or doing anything that wasn't desired or needed to help protect civilians in Libya as it was falling apart. Finally, we go to Kosovo. Here's NATO's fact check on that. NATO's operation in Kosovo in 1999 followed over a year of intense diplomatic efforts by the UN and the contact group, of which Russia was a member, to end the conflict. The UN Security Council repeatedly branded the ethnic cleansing in Kosovo and the mounting number of refugees as a threat to international peace and security. NATO's mission helped to end large score. I'm sorry, large-scale and sustained violations of human rights and the killing of civilians. So NATO's peacekeeping group in Kosovo, which was called K4, uh, had a UN mandate and was supported by both Belgrade and Pristina. So again, this is, it's crazy because Russia likes to play the victim and wants to take no responsibility for any of its actions or behaviors. And they like to lie and mislead and over, um, I guess, paint in broad strokes the realities of what happened. They like to rewrite history. And so Russia has destroyed its economy, its natural gas, its oil exports, its people have been fleeing, the ones that can its military is in shambles. And so they're trying to win people over and say NATO is fighting Russia. And that's not the case at all. The very loud, aggressive bully 
that has been picking on numerous smaller people is finally starting to realize it doesn't have many friends and it's wondering why why are all these people against it well it's because it's a bully but i'm sure vladimir putin will not see it that way but we're not going to let the disinformation stand so nato put out this uh five you know debunking the top five russian myths those are the facts i've got the link in the source notes if you want to review them uh, I was almost going to say if you need to share them with friends, but I don't like to. It's hard to have political discussions with people that uh, disagree with you. But at any rate, if you share them, share them respectfully. And so we're trying to build this country back together. We're trying not to be so divided. And I understand some of the concerns of folks who want us to stop supporting Ukraine. But let's at least keep the historical facts and records straight so that, um, you know, let's just not let people spin this too much from the side of Vladimir Putin. Let's at least knock down the disinformation. So there you go. Five myths debunked. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to, Please sign up for email notifications. It's free unless you choose to subscribe and support what I'm doing. But you can sign up for free at my website, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. From there, you can subscribe to the show by email, and that'll make sure you never miss any future episodes. Again, that's free. I will also say that people are, are always asking me on social media, how to best support my dreams, including getting out future books in some series that they love sooner than what I'm currently doing. Believe me, the best way to support me or this show is by signing up for a paid subscription at my Substack page. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. Or you can sign up to support at Patreon. Again, that's Patreon. Or you can also find me on Venmo at author Stan R. Mitchell. Again, that's author Stan R. Mitchell. And I have links to both of those in the source notes or on my Substack page, which again is stanormitchell.substack.com. Either of those options, if you're wanting to pay, are $5 per month, and you can cancel those at any time. The paid subscriptions provide a recurring monthly revenue, and that $5 a month is the fastest way that I'll be able to return to becoming a full-time author again, which means I'll have more time to write fiction, it'll have... I'll have more time to cover the news, even more in-depth, and I'll be able to work even harder to try to unite the country and motivate others. And these are all things that I feel drawn to do, like strongly drawn to do. So, of course, you can also tell people about the podcast, and there's even the option to give a gift subscription to a friend. You guys can also clearly tell people about my books, which many of you are already doing, and I appreciate each and every one of you doing that. But I do want to be very clear here, you don't have to do any of these things. I truly feel called to do this, and I've already had tremendous support from people who've signed up to chip in a few bucks each month. You guys know who you are. I really do appreciate you. So trust me, you can sign up, come and go as you like. If you want to subscribe for a couple of three months, that's great. You can do that. As long as I'm making enough to cover the time I put into doing this show, then I'm not going anywhere. I love highlighting the sacrifices of our military. I love trying to unify the country. I love throwing cold water on these over-the-top exaggerations by extremist politicians and broadcasters. 
And honestly, I love knowing that I'm helping motivate and reach out to people who just need a little extra encouragement each week. So thanks so much for your support. And with all of that out of the way, let's get back to the show. All right, so let's move across the world a little bit to the China-Taiwan hemisphere and the friction that's growing there. And I want to talk about Japan for a couple of uh, moments here. Uh, Japan recently signed what's being called the most significant defense agreement between it and the UK in more than a hundred years. And I wanted to get into the weeds just a bit because, again, as Russia is trying to blame NATO and the West for what it's doing, China, of course, will increasingly be saying it's everyone else that's causing this. But let's talk about why Japan is doing what it's doing. If you recall, in the December 22nd episode of The View from the Front, which I've heard is just an amazing podcast, but I might, I don't know, that might not be the case. I might be a little biased. But I talked about how Japan will likely have the third largest military budget. They are ramping up big time. And we talked about in that episode how they're going to buy between 400 to 500 Tomahawk cruise missiles. These, of course, fly very low, very hard to shoot down. They are incredibly accurate. They have been the cornerstone of the U.S. military for a couple of decades now. And the idea was that if North Korea or China attacked Japan, they would have a second strike capability that would absolutely, certainly put a lot of pain on whatever country sent it, if not devastate their airfields and other structures that could be hit with these weapons. So it's a huge purchase. And we'd also talked about how Japan had sent some fighter jets down to the Philippines because Japan is tired of being threatened and bullied. And that's what I wanted to get into. It has since come out since this peace treaty was signed. I want to quote a story from the Washington Post. And the headline is a good one. A menacing Russia and China pulled Japan out of its past. Let me just read three paragraphs. Why is Japan taking this step toward remilitarization? One galvanizing moment for Japanese leaders, U.S. officials say, was when China and Russia flew six heavy bombers near Japan in a joint exercise on May 24th as Tokyo was hosting a meeting of the Quad Partnership of Australia, India, Japan, and the United States. Japan expressed, quote, serious concerns about the flights. But China and Russia did it again in late November, sending two Chinese heavy bombers and two Russian planes over the Sea of Japan. This time, Tokyo expressed, quote, severe concerns, again, with no apparent response. So the first time it happened, it was, quote, serious concerns in diplomatic speak. The second time, Tokyo calls it, quote, severe concerns. So they went from serious to severe Continuing the article, another wake-up call came in August when China fired five missiles into Japan's, quote, exclusive economic zone, end quote, during a spasm of military exercises after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. And then they have a quote from uh, Japan's former defense minister, who now serves as a special advisor to the prime minister. And that quote is, we have protested strongly through diplomatic channels. The lesson was that, quote, nothing in the Taiwan Strait stays in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, that was a quote from Rahm Emanuel on the latter one, who's the U.S. ambassador to Tokyo. And so 
Japan has watched Russia and China increasingly push, threaten, bully, and cajole weaker neighbors. And they don't want to allow this kind of aggression to continue basically taking over or manipulating or bullying these smaller nations into agreements and then Japan would sit this out, wait five or ten years, and then be too small, too weak, and too underprepared to deal with whatever threat might come from China and or Russia. So that's the background on why Japan is now moving heavily toward a huge military budget. And we're talking huge. So there's not a whole lot out that is that describes what's in this new defense agreement. I'll share in the source notes a little bit of the story from the UK Defense Journal. Of course, this is agreed in principle by the Prime Ministers. It'll have to be agreed by the British Parliament and the uh, legislative body in Japan as well. But a couple of things from that article is that first, uh, earlier this month, uh, U.S., Australian, British, and Japanese paratroopers conducted joint paratroop or parachute training from Japanese aircraft. I thought that was pretty big. And the story also reminds uh, readers that there have been U.K.-Japanese exercises that began in 2000, uh, 2018. So um, those were the first time foreign troops had conducted military exercises on Japanese soil. And so this has been going on for a bit so it's interesting that forces other than just U.S. troops are starting to operate with Japanese forces. And again, it just seems pretty clear that Japan is tired of being ignored and being stepped on and intimidated. And so they're going to increasingly start building up their military because they have unfortunately seen that words alone are not enough. So with that out of the way, let's move to some really cool tech news. There's a couple of things we'll cover there, and then we will get into what, for many people, is the best part of the show, which is the motivation and wisdom part. And today, I think it's kind of off the charts good. So even it has some uh, even has some marriage advice in it. So really good stuff. But let's get to the tech news first. In tech news this week, there were a couple of things that I wanted to cover. The first thing is lasers. We've talked about lasers in the past several times. And one of the really cool things about doing this show is that I think I've been doing the entire show for more than a year plus now. As far as if you go back to when I was writing the Substack each week for just defense news. But the cool thing is, is I'm already starting to see things that I wrote about a year plus ago when they weren't realities yet. And some of these things are now starting to become realities. And that's the case with lasers. We've talked about lasers a few times, but the Navy has received six lasers from Lockheed Martin, which they'd had a contract out to build. And these lasers will be mounted on ships and are already in the process of being mounted on ships. And their goals will, um, they have a 60 kilowatt laser and an optical dazzler is what it's called as well, that they're designed to knock out unmanned aerial vehicles, so obviously drones, um, damage or destroy small boats that may be coming near it, or also drones, and then disrupt both airborne and shipborne uh, various forms of sensors. And just a quote from the story, 
which is from Task and Purpose, they write the following. As swarms of drone aircraft, watercraft, and anti-ship missiles pose growing threats to surface vessels, laser weapon systems have proven an ideal, low-cost, near-unlimited ammo countermeasure to deter potential attacks. The story also discussed that these, as I said earlier, are 60 kilowatt. They eventually want to get to in the range of 150 kilowatt. Um, right now, the problem is just storing that level of energy. But the Navy wants to move beyond, quote, self-defense to something that's more offensive. And so they're trying to take these laser designs further and further into both range, power, and lethality. So story link is in the Substack notes. If you want to go there and click it and get in the weeds a little bit more, it's a pretty cool story. The second thing also involves drones, and this is the Navy is has announced, I guess I should say, that they want to have up to 100 unmanned craft in Middle East waters, including the Persian Gulf, um, by the end of 2023, and they're on track to have 20 of them by the end of next month. Um, so that's already starting to happen, and in the story about that, the... Navy talks about, this comes from Defense One, that is basically going to allow for more I-Zones, so to speak. They will work in concert with regular surface ships, but there are about 8,000 vessels in the Persian Gulf area at any given time, and so their idea is that these will provide better surveillance, earlier detection, etc. So most of them will have video capabilities, and so it will allow and I'm sure not vision as well, and possibly thermal, but it will allow surface ships to track and detect things way earlier and help keep an eye on things that should not be happening. In the story, they quote an admiral named Admiral Cooper, and he says that by having these drones, that they will be in a better deterrent posture because they're just going to be able to see more than they can see today. So I think that's just the overall purpose of it it will allow the navy to see more and also be in a better position to deter should iran or something you know get a little aggressive it gives them more time to respond to those type of challenges so that's pretty cool that especially we've talked about the shortcomings of the navy as far as surface numbers and especially several congressional committees have been very frustrated by that, but this is a way to, in a much more um, efficient and less expensive manner, to broaden the size of the Navy so that it can see and control more water than it could in the past and, and do it much cheaper. So that's cool. You, again, that was story was from Defense One. You can find that in the source notes as well and get into the weeds on that a bit if you'd like. And that wraps up our tech news for this week, so let's move to the motivation and wisdom portion. I wanted to say just real quick, just a short little intro, which I'll probably repeat every week because sometimes it helps to get things to sink in by hearing them repeated. And I know some people think that motivational quotes are crap, they don't work, and I frankly completely disagree, and one of the things I've always wanted to be was an encourager, and so I want to encourage you as much as I can, obviously, 
But for those who say that motivational quotes don't work, you know, I went to a rough school and going to that school, not everyone graduated, not everyone made it out. And certainly not all of them, everyone made it through college or or to where they probably wanted to get in life. Because it's hard to be around people that don't believe, that suck the energy out of you, or that are just beaten down by life or poverty or just difficult circumstances, um, whether it's a single parent, etc. But for me, at least, having books that I read, having dreams, having heroes that I looked up to, whether it was sports figures or past presidents or past military leaders, all of those things helped me. And I know that you guys know this, that if you go to a sales conference or something for like a couple of days, or just some type of leadership event, or just some type of really on-fire type event, and you're around positive people, you are just like, show me the wall, I'll run through it. You're just fired up. But then if you go home, and there's some family members or friends who don't believe in you, and they're like, oh, that won't work, or you can't do that, it just immediately sucks the life out of you. So I know that, you know, people say motivation doesn't last, but I think that motivation is something that absolutely can help you get to where you want to go. And, you know, I believe all of us can reach our dreams. And I definitely want to do my part to help you get there. So that's why I put these in every week. It's my hope that they really help you. You know, people say motivation doesn't last. Well, neither does bathing. And that's why we recommend it daily. And that's what the great Zig Ziglar said. So that's why I try to put these in every week. So I really hope you get something uh, from them. And with that, let's just get started. I'm really hoping that today's items that I'll be sharing helps encourage you and help you guys a lot. There's some good ones in here. And like I often prefer to do, we will start with kind of a bigger overarching one. And this one is actually from all the way back in December. I had saved it and I'd been looking for the chance to somehow get it in. And I finally am going to get that chance. And that bigger one is someone had asked Tom Nichols, what was the secret to a long lasting, happy marriage? And the thing about Twitter is there is so much just unpleasant stuff on there. There's just sometimes you wonder why you get on it. But there are also just unbelievable nuggets you find there sometimes. And I'm not sure if this is an answer that he spent years perfecting or if he just threw this out because he makes replies and tweets quickly, but it stuck with me. And so a person on there said, what's the secret to a long-lasting, happy marriage? And Tom Nichols replied, knowing that love is more important than any stupid thing that upsets you on any given day, and making sure to treat every week like there's a first date in there. And wow, like, that is so profound, is it not? I'll read it again. Knowing that love is more important than any stupid thing that upsets you on any given day, and making sure to treat every week like there's a first date in there. So I don't know if I if I sat down for six months or a year and made a single principle on the best way to have a great marriage that you can only, you have to keep it restricted to just one tweet. I don't think I could do any better than that. I think that is just amazing. So just remember love's more important than anything that's upsetting you that day, and make sure at least once a week you have a first date in there. I think that's pretty dadgone good uh, marriage advice right there. That's probably a good secret to a long-lasting, happy marriage. And you could probably definitely throw in religion or putting the Lord first as well, but if you're trying not to upset people who 
aren't currently in some type of religious walk. That is a good non-religious answer that I think really does hit the mark pretty well. Now, as I say every week, I'm just going to read these. You can find them in the source notes from my Substack page if you want to follow these folks. There's some great ones to follow. And again, my Substack page is stanormitchell.substack.com. Here is the first one. This is a quote from Aristotle. We can't learn without pain. We can't learn without pain. A lot of truth in that one, isn't there? Next one. Don't make important decisions when you are hungry or tired. They used to say that in the military all the time. Again, it's don't make important decisions when you are hungry or tired. Next one. This one follows one from earlier, it seems. There's no better teacher than life. Whether you fail or succeed, it will be an experience. Again, there's no better teacher than life. Whether you fail or succeed, it will be an experience. Next one. You grow mentally weak when your life is too comfortable. That one is way true, isn't it? You grow mentally weak when your life is too comfortable. Next one. Have the maturity to know sometimes silence is more powerful than having the last word. Is that one good or what? How many times have we fired off some comment to someone in a moment of anger or in the middle of an argument and you know those words wound and it might lead to a division or fracture with that person person for the next 10 years, 5 years, 5 months. So much easier and better to just not say the word. Again, the quote is, Have the maturity to know sometimes silence is more powerful than having the last word. I think we've all been hurt by words. And it's e- there are things that I remember from, honestly, 10 plus years ago. There are words that hurt. You just don't forget them. So I think it's best to bite your tongue for sure. And there really is. We've all had those moments, too, where someone doesn't really defend themselves and then like weeks later, days later, months later, you find out that they were right about something and that someone else had told you wrong or that someone else had even misled you. Wow, that's when you really have a lot of respect for someone when they don't even have to defend themselves. Next one. Time, not money, is the most important currency of your life. Again, time, not money, is the most important currency of your life. I think that one's pretty self-explanatory. Next one. Whatever you want in life, other people are going to want it too. Believe in yourself enough to accept the idea that you have an equal right to it. That one really hits home. It's like we all feel like sometimes we don't deserve this or that. And we we go for it. And sometimes we don't even just half-heartedly go for it. We really go for it, but we don't feel like... We really deserve it, even though we'll sometimes get a little envious of others. But we kind of, for whatever reasons, we are harder on ourselves than we are on our friends or other people. Again, that quote is, Whatever you want in life, other people are going to want it too. Believe in yourself enough to accept the idea that you have an equal right to it. Next one. Never give up on things that make you smile. Again, it's never give up on things that make you smile. It's the way I feel when I'm doing, when I'm writing, or really in the groove, or sometimes when I'm doing a podcast. I'm getting a little more comfortable with that, but it doesn't feel like work, and it makes me smile. 
Next one. The past is where you learned the lesson. The future is where you apply the lesson. Don't give up in the middle. That one's a little deep. I'll read it again. The past is where you learned the lesson. The future is where you apply the lesson. Don't give up in the middle. Next one. Just be yourself. Let people see the real, imperfect, flawed, quirky, weird, beautiful, magical person that you are. I love that one. My wife is amazing at... I will sometimes worry about if I have an interview or even when I'm sometimes worried about the podcast. How do I sound? What do I look like? Blah, blah, blah. And she's always like, just be you. Like, that's all you gotta do is just be you. But we, we struggle to do that, don't we? Next one. Lighten up on yourself. No one is perfect. That one perfectly follows. Next one. This is a quote from Albert Einstein. Never give up on what you really want to do. The person with big dreams is more powerful than one with all the facts. I absolutely love that one. Again, the quote is, Never give up on what you really want to do. The person with big dreams is more powerful than one with all the facts. Next one. One kind word can change someone's entire day. Be human. Be kind. I love that one. This next one blew me away when I when I uh, saw it. In fact, I saved it to one of my note files. If you don't keep note files of like positive quotes, I highly recommend it. This one is, positivity is a superpower. Isn't that amazing? Positivity is a superpower. Next one. Your goals should scare you a little and excite you a lot. I love that one. Next one. Until we can manage time, we can manage nothing else. I love that. We all get so worried about being in charge or being a manager or doing this or that, some high-level thing. And it's like, if you're not doing the basic blocking and tackling, if you're not even good at your regular job, you're definitely not going to get promoted. So be the best wherever you are on that ladder. Here's the next one. The easiest way to lose anything is to take it for granted. I love that. The easiest way to lose anything is to take it for granted. Reminds me of a quote I once stole from a Navy SEAL book and it talked about that complacency kills. It kills marriages, it kills, you know, communities, kills churches, kills countries, you name it. If you get complacent about anything, your health, it I'm maybe there's an exception to the rule, but I can't think of anything that complacency doesn't kill at some point. Next one. Believe in what you want so much that it has no choice but to materialize. I absolutely love that one too. Believe in what you want so much that it has no choice but to materialize. That's like, uh, I can't stand door-to-door salesmen like everyone. But, it, you know, obviously if like a kid shows up or something, you, you just almost jump out of your, at least for me anyway, I, I try my best to buy from any kid who has the nerve to walk up to a door and try to buy something. But, on the flip side, we've all seen those adults, like someone who's trying to sell something, and if they just persist long enough, weeks and weeks, months and months, etc., like at some point you're just like, man, like, what are they selling? Or They're so determined, it starts to just win you over. And so I almost feel like life is that way with your fortunes, that if you believe in what you want so much, it has no choice but to materialize Next one. Soulmates aren't just lovers, they're friends too. 
Your soulmates will naturally recognize you and align with you. They'll understand you, appreciate you, support you, love you, heal with you, and evolve with you. They'll make you feel beautiful in your own skin just for being you. Next one. Make life fun. Tomorrow isn't guaranteed. Another good one. Next one. The best revenge is no revenge. Move on. Be happy. That is a just a great one. Not only does it keep you from carrying whatever little almost anger or hurt that you may have, just best to let it go. But also, it, it's almost like sometimes someone expects you to be mad about something or or to fire back or to talk back about them behind their back or whatever it is. And when you don't, it's almost like they're like, what? How is that possible? Why is that person not mad? Or I hurt them bad. Why did they not respond at all? So the best revenge is no revenge. Move on. Be happy. And on that similar note, we all know people who they'll get involved in some huge conflict with someone and they just won't let it go. And they want to take it all the way up to HR with that work employee or they got the neighbor and before long they're more than just verbally angry, you know, angry at each other. They're involved in court cases and it's they're both spending more and more money. They just will not let it go over the smallest thing. And you can just really get just distracted and off track in life with that kind of stuff. So sometimes just best to let it go so the best revenge is no revenge move on be happy i love that i always like to end with this one be the reason someone smiles be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people i always think that's a great one to end with and with that thanks for joining us this week on the view from the front for those who want to know a little bit more about me here's the short version I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I left home to join the Marine Corps at the age of 17. I was also crazy enough to demand that the Marine Corps put me down for guaranteed infantry. I served four years in the infantry, saw enough danger to decide I no longer had anything else to prove, and I exited military service in 1999. I earned a degree from the University of Tennessee in journalism and spent 10 plus years in the news business. I worked initially as a reporter, but then went on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013, but once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while I still have my sights set on the tallest peaks in the writing world, I'm now here as well, a -a once-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. Well, I've talked enough about me. I really hope you'll consider at least signing up to be a free subscriber. And if you can, consider at some point becoming a paid subscriber. Again, you can do both of these things at my substack, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work together to unite this country. And also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. And if you've got a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to, who you haven't talked to in a few months, reach out to them. 
And finally, if you're one of those awesome military folks listening out there, if you need help, please reach out to someone. Call a friend or a family member. Do it for us all. We've lost too many of the greatest folks that this country has produced to suicide. So I'm asking you to be brave once more and show some vulnerability. Take a deep breath. Breathe. Call a friend or family member, one of your fellow veterans, someone who can help. There's obviously hotline numbers as well that you can call. With that, I appreciate each and every one of you, every tweet, every share, every email that I get. can't tell you how much those mean to me. Also, if you haven't already put a rating on some of the um, social media places that you listen to us, whether it's Apple Podcasts or some of the others, if you could drop a rating, that'd be great. We're trying to get those up because I've heard if you get them up to 30 or 40, then the algorithms take over. So that'd be a great way to help out. And then finally, let me mention my books because, honestly, the airspace is free. And also, if you're the kind of person who listens to this podcast, they are probably books that would interest you. So I will briefly describe them real quickly. The first series is about a CIA series involving a Marine Scout sniper named Nick Woods. There's four books in that series. I got a fifth one releasing soon. I'm almost done with that, actually. Uh, It's my best-selling series, and not only is it fast-paced and crammed with action, but... Folks say that the uh, main character, Nick Woods, is one of the most real characters they've ever read. He's not some Jason Bourne-like Superman. He's just a hard, tough man who was raised in the old ways. The first book in that series is called Sold Out, and that's obviously because the main character, Nick Woods, gets sold out. I've also got a detective series about a prior Force Recon Marine who becomes a detective. He moves from a big city, which was Memphis, to a small town, and he learns there's a lot more going on there than you'd think. It's got some organized crime in it, loads of action, a couple of cops die before the end of book one, and if you love that as much as I think you will, there's also a book two. Book one is called Takedown, book two is called Gravel Road, and it may have one of the longest, most grueling hand-to-hand fight scenes you've ever read. I get so much feedback from readers who just say that they are on pins and needles at the end of book two on what is happening and what... um, the prior Force Recon Marine goes through. His name is Danny Akov, by the way. And then I've also got book one of a private investigator series done. It's about an army ranger who's a girl's only hope after she gets abducted and the cops have stopped looking. Uh, There's plenty of action in it as well. And it doesn't hurt that the aunt of the girl um, is hot and she takes part in the chase. So uh, that book is called Hell in the Mountains. And then I've got a couple of realistic war novels. One's about World War II. It's called Soldier On. And I talk about, or I write about the end of World War II, an imaginary situation where the last elements of part of the German army is just trying to survive. They know the war is lost, but they're trapped from, on one side, you know, the advancing American troops, and on the other, uh, Nazi SS units. So it, really, the book is, it's it's pretty deep, and so it, the, it digs into the realities of military leadership, and as these warriors are pushed and pulled through just unbelievable physical torment and mental anguish and will they survive with their honor and dignity and i think you know and i've been told this that soldier on just truly defines what it means to be a soldier to never give up and then i've also got a realistic war novel about afghanistan it's called hill 406 it's about a couple of marines who couldn't be more different and they get thrown into an unbelievable combat situation, and it's a situation in which they decide to disobey orders and risk everything in order to save some Marines. Had lots of great feedback about how gritty and realistic that one is from veterans who've served there, which is about the highest honor I could possibly get. Um, 
And then finally, I've got one other book I wanted to mention just real quickly. And then the final book I mentioned is actually it's a part biography, part self-help, all inspiration type book uh, about Barack Obama, but includes absolutely no politics, no left-right issues. It's literally just a non-political look at Obama's rise. And I try to answer questions that many wonder about American presidents, what sets them apart, what qualities allowed them to reach their goals, where others failed, how can you cultivate those qualities in yourself, and... Besides that, I also share some things about him that you may not know, such as, throw out a couple. Did you know that before he ran for the U.S. Senate, he was crushed by a four-term incumbent who beat him by a two-to-one margin? Most people aren't aware of that. He also coached his uh, Sasha's fourth-grade recreational basketball team called the Vipers while president. That was not super well-known. And then also, the craziest thing, as he's known for being a speaker... Did you know that when he started, he actually wasn't even a good speaker? He admits that himself. So I'll talk about several things I've found out about him as I researched him some. And I think it's a great book that'll help inform you and motivate you. Kind of go into how he found his call and how he mastered speaking. How he overcome just so many obstacles, including that huge like two-to-one election defeat that I mentioned above. And it's the first in what I think will be a number of presidential books, assuming they sell well enough. And so... It's the first one will be on him, and the next one will be on a Republican. I've kind of started that one, but I put it on hold until I try to see what the interest level is on some type of um, series of books such as this. Some folks don't like the political angles, but again, if you can get past the cover and the name, it's not a political angle. It's inspiration. It's self-help type stuff. And so, you know, I think you can learn a lot from presidents and... I could go for on for probably hours, honestly, about how it's crazy some of the people who end up becoming president and the things they do to get there. But again, I won't get into it too much. But that book is called Number 44, The Traits and Characteristics That Carried Barack Obama to the Top. The How he managed to, with his name, with the background, the mixed background, the lack of money, and the ability to beat out the Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton machine and make it to where he was is still just astonishing. I know he isn't liked by everybody, but it's an incredible book, in my humble opinion. So that's called Number 44. You can check that out as well. And I don't think I said this earlier, but you can find all of my books on Amazon. So just go to Amazon and just search for the name Stan R. Mitchell, and you should see a whole list of them. You'll see them all listed, and that's the best place to get them. And that's also why I have to put the R in my name. You'll see there's more than one Stan Mitchell. So way back in the day, I had to do what I never wanted to do, which is put a middle initial in my name, which to me just seems kind of, I don't know, pretentious. But yes, go to Amazon.com, search Stan R. Mitchell, and you will see a list of them. Hey guys, thanks so much. I figure by this point, not a lot of people listen anyway, but for those who are, I will catch you guys next Thursday. Thanks so much, and with that, I am out.